Hello. Hello, Yoav. Hey, Michael. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Good. Good. And where are you right now? I'm in Tel Aviv, actually. Last time I saw you was in New York. That is why I am calling. We are about to release your episode, the episode that you're in. Uh, oh, with how Kai. exciting. Yeah. Uh, I mean, hopefully by tonight, <laughs> if I can get it all oh. done. <laughs> and you're in uh, Tel Aviv. So what are you doing there? I'm in Tel Aviv. I was in New York and in Boston for the past summer for an artist residency for two months. I think we mentioned that during our conversation. During the show, sure. And I'm back in Tel Aviv uh, because I'm committed to teach here in Thai year. Oh, you'll be there all year. Yeah, I'm going to be here this academic year. I have to, you know, I committed myself and I'm going to hold my commitment. Oh, that's and other than that, I'm, I'm about to launch three different shows in September, October and November here in Israel. So, Is there a place where we can find links to those? What, what's the first one coming up? Uh, the first one is actually a, a group show at the Contemporary Art Department at the Israel Museum in Jerusalem, which I'm very excited uh, about this opportunity. Specifically because I'm showing for the first time, I think, in my life, I'm showing work that I just started working on a year ago. Mm. It's kind of work in progress. It's not a complete project. But I'm showing 12 portraits in this exhibition of uh, new things that I started working on in Israel, in Tel Aviv, last uh, summer. The title of the work is Serene Oasis. Serene Oasis? Yes, that's actually the name, the little translation of the name of the neighborhood where I photographed. Oh, I think, is that some of that project up on your website? Yes, it is on my website. There are like a selection of maybe of 20 pictures. Uh, I've been working on it since last November. Uh, and part of the reason why I'm here is actually to keep on working on it, which is actually becoming a very interesting and exciting project. It's becoming like my little East 100th Street project in some sense. That's fantastic. So so, there, <laughs> yeah. so this is what you're doing for the year. And um, the other shows, will you put up links to those or send out information about yes, those? Yes, I will. I will. As soon as, soon as they are, uh, the dates are final and the titles are final and all that, because October is a solo show and November is another group show, uh, I will actually place it on my website as well, links, that's uh, great. dates, all that stuff. And... and Thanks for calling in from Tel Aviv, and uh, we're going to start the show. Well, pleasure. I'm really excited to hear the, the new, I, even though it's, you know how it is, it's extremely embarrassing to listen to yourself. <laughs> we try to avoid it at all costs, you know. It's not the same as looking at our pictures, you know. I no. will look at my pictures and discuss my pictures, but my voice... You know, it's a little different. You know, so far nobody has embarrassed themselves. So, <laughs> so far, I know, so actually I've been following that. Uh, on regularly, so so I've been I've been listening to all of them so far, and it's great because I know all of them uh, right. to one you know to one degree or another. But uh, you always get to hear these little things that you don't know about them. It's true. It's really true about their life and about what actually motivates them, and it's really exciting. And I think that uh, it's really helpful. I'm really glad about this. Uh, being part of this project. Oh, thank you, and and thank you for being a part of the project. So we'll we'll talk soon and keep in touch, and I'll I'll uh, make sure the links are up on the site to your website. And thank you. Uh, here we go. Thank you. Well, have a good afternoon, Michael, and uh, good luck with the academic year that starts this week or next week for you. Oh yeah, starts tomorrow. Oh well, good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> good luck to you too. <laughs> All right, Michael. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks.
Should I turn off my phone just in yeah, case? Yeah, if you want to turn off the ringer, that'd be great. No, it's probably just on vibrate. Vibrate's fine. Vibrate's okay. Hello, Yoav. Hi, Michael. So uh, here we are at De La Salle Academy. We're with uh, Yoav Haresh, who's been very generous and coming here on your way out the door, practically, right? You're right. about to hop on a bus. Uh, back to Boston, where right. I'm at for the entire summer, pretty mm -hmm. much. And with us co-hosting is Kai, Kai McBride. Yes, back for round two. <laughs> With another Israeli. That's right. <laughs> that seems to be like a motif here, huh? Well, actually, we should, maybe we should mention that. You know, we just had a, a nice talk with Imbal Abergil. What is it uh, about Colombia, do you think? That we've had, there's been a, a few Israeli citizens come through the program. Right. I, well, first of all, I, I must claim that I was the first. All right. <laughs> I was the first Israeli the in the photo, in yeah. photography, yeah. right. What is it about Israelis and Columbia universities, uh, university program? Uh, I don't know what it is about, but I do know that starting 2004, basically when I was, uh, you know, in my second half of my first year at Columbia, there was this new organization across Israeli-American organization called Artis. And Artis actually offered uh, specific scholarships for Israeli artists attending Columbia MFA program in New York, uh, which encouraged maybe more students to apply. Uh, it might have encouraged Columbia to accept more. I actually, I, I lived in the United States since 1997. Um, so as much as I'm Israeli, I actually came to Colombia six years after I arrived in New York. During the time, I also did my undergrad in Boston. Where in Boston? At Mass College of Art. Um, and when I, uh, when I had the opportunity to apply for grad school, Colombia was one of the three grad schools I applied to. Partially because uh, I, I heard about Tom. I saw his work online. I never met him before. Uh, I liked the fact that it was an interdisciplinary program. Um, and I love New York, and I really wanted to come back to New York. I lived in New York for a year and a half, then I moved to Boston, and I wanted to be back in New York. And the opportunity to go to grad school uh, with some scholarships, you know, here and there, was, uh, was uh, really what I wanted to do. So in 2003, I moved back to New York from Boston. Tom likes to tell the story, but true or not, that uh, you walked into the interview at Columbia, threw down or put down your portfolio case and said, I don't care what they offer me, I'm not going to Yale. I guess you had just come from the interview just, at Yale. Yes, it's true. <laughs> I, I don't remember that exact uh, sentence, Yeah, but uh, it's true. I actually, I, uh, Columbia was the third interview I had that week. Um, I was in San Francisco earlier, and then I was at Yale. And then I came to Colombia. That was my last interview for mm -hmm. the week. And so in the version of the story I hear is it's you're like getting off the train from New Haven. You walk up to Columbia, you throw down your portfolio case and say, that, that sounds amazing. Yeah, but it's not quite the way it actually happened. It's true that Tom already knew that I interviewed at Yale the same mm -hmm. week. Uh, Oh, that's a school bell. <laughs> we, we are in a school. Okay. That's fine. <laughs> this is like, you know, so as, as, every time Tom's name comes around, it's like as a bell. bells. An angel gets its wings. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's true. Tom knew that I, I interviewed with Todd at Yale that same week, and I actually left the, uh, the interview with Todd kind of a little bit upset, you know, uh, partially because I was sitting there for the entire, you know, our interview, hour and a half interview, and the conversation was just Todd and myself. 
mm. where there are 13 or 14 graduate students there, four other faculty members, and no one said a word. Oh, strange. And at the, the end, towards the end of the interview, you know, there's the regular question, well, we're winding down, there's anything you would like to add or ask us? And I said, yes, I've been sitting here for, you know, over half an hour for sure. And the only one I heard here is you, Todd. What about you? And I was like extending my gesture uh, to the students in their faculty. And I said, do you like being here? Do you think it's a good program? Uh, or Todd is holding a shotgun under the table. Did you really say that? I wow. totally said that. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, and, and they couldn't nice. even laugh. You know, oh. they were so embarrassed. They were so kind of dreading, I guess, the environment. And I, th I think I actually hit a very sensitive spot there. Yes, that, that it seems there like is it. a one voice there that's, you know, kind of the authoritative voice and everyone else are listening, you know. Um, and after that, so there was silence. And then Todd said, OK, so I think we're done. <laughs> oh, wow. And, and, and then and then actually uh, Greg Crutzen came to me after that and said, like, uh, I think you should come here for a critique to see what's really happening here. Uh, uh, you know, interview setting is not a real setting. And so I would love to. And I, and I came back three days after uh, to New Haven. I drove down and, and there was a group critique of graduate students. And again, it was only Todd who mm. talked about the work. And everybody was waiting to hear what Todd has to say. Was Gregory Kurtz in there? Yes, in the he was there. James Casebeer was there. A couple other faculty members. But it was a conversation between Todd and the students individually whenever a student came up for critique. And then Todd came to me after the, after the critique and, you know, he put his hand over my shoulder and was like, well, so what do you think now? And I said, it was the same thing. <laughs> it's just Interesting. you. Yeah. Uh, needless to say that they did not admit me to the program. Oh, wow. I didn't know that when I went to Columbia, but mm -hmm. the big difference was that, you know, at Columbia interview, I was in front of four students, three faculty members. The majority of the conversation was between me and different students. Mm -hmm. um, which I like that. I like the fact that students were very involved. Uh, during the interview, I got into an, uh, a heated argument with Tom <laughs> uh, about national security and racial profiling. Wow. Uh, you being pro or what? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, we, we, talk, we talked about the portfolio that I brought, which was uh, a series of photographs that eventually became my thesis, actually, at Columbia, because I started working on it six months before I, I interviewed. Uh, and I and I you know I got this this you know this body of work and project into the program. Was that the aftermath? Project? That was exactly that was aftermath, which was right. basically I was uh, researching and photographing sites of former terrorist attacks in Israel, but I was only photographing them after they were fixed and repaired. So I was not really interested in the gory images as much as I was interested in the idea of history of a place, history of trauma. How do we actually deal with trauma? Uh, what kind of you know role a government has with dealing with trauma, and and when Tom asked me why did I start working on this project, and I said that look I've been here in New York for in the United States for six years almost. Um, September 11th just happened a year before I was in Boston at the time, um, and what really surprised me was the with the extreme measures and response the American people and, and American culture had to these you know, terrible events. So as soon as September 11th happened, people stopped flying. And then there was the anthrax scare and people did not pick up their mail. 
And then there were the two snipers in Washington and kids did not go to field trips. And I was thinking about myself and my experience growing up in Jerusalem. And one of the, 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 the most prominent memories that I have from this exact you know, idea was that I, um, I went to buy shoes with my father when I was six, downtown Jerusalem, in the pedestrian mall in like the afternoon. And we're walking down the pedestrian mall and then several hundreds of feet behind us, there's uh, a guy, uh, a terrorist, you can say, uh, uh, running down the pedestrian mall with an AK-47 and spraying bullets and throwing hand grenades. And my father is taking me into like an alley. And within five minutes, you know, the whole event is, is over with, you know, police and ambulances and all that. And then uh, my father said, okay, so well, let's, we're here to buy shoes. <laughs> and you went right so, back. Yes, we, we, we went to buy shoes. <laughs> and, and this has been part, a very, you know, prominent part of a you know, growing up in Israel. I and I can see that in your work. I, I, I've been looking at your website, yoavharesh.com. We'll uh, link to that on the site. There's a thread through a, lot, a number of your projects where there's this idea of tourism and oasis and, and where people stand and, and how people react to right. where they are the and, and if they're even aware of where they the, are. Right. The place is, is, a, is definitely something that's coming back in my work for the past probably 15 years. Uh, I'm very much interested in the place and the idea of memory of a place, history of a place, and how we as contemporary people actually occupy this space and what do we do in this space. Um, so it's true that there was a project that I did in Germany for a few years that called Traumatic Tourism, which was after uh, sites of trauma and uh, memory, and how they became uh, tourist attractions. Just like the Eiffel Tower, it will go to sites of mass graves or battlefields you know we can see that in in this you know this and, and it almost in, in some of the photos it almost doesn't seem to matter what happened at the site people want to take the photograph that shows they were there right. smiling hugging right. holding I, I think it's it's a way of people to actually uh, be part of of uh, a longer history of 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 events and happening when you actually there and you photograph yourself you become part of history you are actually taking charge of this moment and and you are becoming and you're documenting it and it's a proof that you were there and and you're actually there it's true they do exactly the same things you know they will do in this side versus the other side you will photograph they will photograph themselves they will have the same hand gestures they will have and we know that now in the selfie you know environment it doesn't really matter what they are we just heard this story yesterday right mm, yeah about about people all of the politicians that are running for the 2016 presidential u.s presidential that they all have to allow at least 20 minutes or more sometimes up to an hour for people to pose with them pose and do with take them. selfies right. yeah and then and, uh, these people becoming part of elections right? yeah yeah and Quote social unquote, media yeah. and you know it's obviously you know yeah we know that so that's true, and, and, and I worked, the first project I worked in was in the American Southwest, uh, in New Mexico and Arizona, where uh, this transition of, of tribes from one traditions and one type of culture into a very different culture, um, the more of American Western culture. Uh, so this is the first thing I worked on. Is that the pre-disengagement? No, this oh. was, I don't think it's really there. It's oh, okay. in Navajo, uh, country that's mm. what the, the pre-disengagement is in the gaza strip oh geez. and and okay. i traveled to the gaza strip to actually see what's happening there prior to the uh disengagement which was the uh, 2005 israeli plan to pull out of the gaza strip and leave it to the palestinians 
And what I was mostly interesting is what how the Palestinians were anticipating and looking forward for that. Yeah, I th- yeah that's the project you deal most directly with the conflict, right? With uh, the- yes, I think that aftermath and previous engagement are kind of both sides of the same mm-hmm. coin in some sense. And it's true; it's only two projects that I worked with on the. Uh, Israeli-Palestinian conflict that's been going on for dozens of years. Uh, but there are other, com- other conflicts in other places that I worked on too. I worked on a project that I still haven't actually even released in Cambodia, in Vietnam. Uh, most recently, I'm working in a neighborhood in Tel Aviv, making portraits of uh, refugees, asylum seekers, and migrant workers. What else? Uh, where we stand, which is another kind of eclectic body of work, is taken all over the world. Um, and it's not necessarily based in trauma, but it is definitely based in how the place is designed. And, and, and how people react to that design. I right, mean, exactly. The title the, is very specific. It's, you, and you look at the photographs, the, the people are, are figures in the landscape that are in a particular place because the place was designed a certain way. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and, and by photographing it in a certain way, you're also reiterating the, the design. Uh, but part of it, I think this is the most maybe photographic project that I did because it, to some extent, you know, the, the photograph is very much dependent on the narrative that's being created in the photograph. This narrative might not ex- necessarily exist in the site itself, but we know how it is when as soon as you are freezing a moment as a photographer, you are creating a story that might not necessarily be true. Actually, I can say that it's definitely not true. It's never true. You know, and, and we can see it with, you know, how we photograph ourselves, how we photograph our friends, and when they yawn or they close their eyes, this is really what happened, but we decide not to use that because it's not telling the story. But on the other hand, when they're all smiling for their selfie sticks and having selfies with Chris Christie or whoever, right? Yeah. This is not life either, right? So we know that, that it's a photograph actually alter reality. And, and the, you know, the thing about the selfie is you very much take yourself out of the actual experience when you hold that camera up to yourself. Right. Exactly. Right? You're creating right. this very artificial moment and as to what's actually happening. And a very narrow angle of view, mm-hmm. obviously. You're ignoring other 300 and something degrees around you, right? As soon as you're just looking at, uh, at a one uh, you know, angle of view and, uh, and one moment. So I think that's part of the work that really attracted me and where we stand is the idea of creating a certain narrative while being there on the spot. And, and the work is made by setting up a 4x5 camera with my parameters and my left, right, top, bottom, knowing where my picture is, but not knowing what's in the picture. And then standing next to the camera with a cable release at hand, you know, waiting for some interaction to happen there, for something more than just the design of the place. And a lot of times I, I fail. <laughs> Has 4x5 been your, your primary choice of camera? Uh, it's, it's, I, I work in at least three formats, frankly. You know, I, I constantly have a 35mm you know, film camera in my bag. Uh, when I travel, when I photograph, I, I travel with a 6.7 and with uh, a 4x5. Uh, I had periods of panoramic that I was using, Tom's Panorama. I had uh, periods in Hong Kong where I lived for three years that I was working with a 6.17 and the Nikonos, you did the underwater And photographs. the Nikonos, right. For years, I was actually diving and photographing underwater with 35mm black and white film. With, you know, Nikonos 4 and 5, which are 1980s mm-hmm. underwater cameras. Yeah, but, you know, it, it is, you know, I, I, I can say that I'm an omni 
format photographer. You know. Does that include any digital work? No. Uh, well, my phone. <laughs> oh, that's right. I do have yeah, a digital yeah. camera on my phone, and I, you know, there were there were a couple of years that I was photographing on the subway in New York, in Hong Kong, and you know, posting on social media. Just last year, I joined Instagram. Oh. Whoa. <laughs> oh. Whoa. I, I'm, I'm kind of a late bloomer in that sense. You know, I only had a cell phone in 2004. That's the first time wow. I ever got a cell phone. Yeah. Uh, I still work with film, even though I do teach digital photography it's not i'm not against it it's just not my choice of tool no oh, actually that's a that's a good segue uh, hong kong and teaching yeah right you were out there um really starting the savannah college of art and design's new campus correct for photography the new department the right. department of photography right right uh, in 2010 i was hired by scad the savannah college of art and design to start the photography department in their new satellite campus in hong kong I don't know much you know about the SCAD, but you know the the Hong Kong campus is the fourth campus the university has, mm. and I was hired with another guy named Steve Eichmann, also a photographer, that's been working for the university for SCAD um, in their Atlanta campus for a number of years before that, and we were both hired to start the photography program, recruit students, write curriculum programs, uh, create collaborations, projects. Uh, and I stayed there for three years. And during those three years, you know, working in the department, photographing a lot in Hong Kong, photographing all around Asia. It was, you know, as professors, we get to teach, what, eight, nine months a year. Mm. And then when I did not have to be in Hong Kong, I would be anywhere in Asia. And I'll work on this project in Cambodia, in Myanmar, in Vietnam. I saw in China. some work from Laos. In Laos, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I spent from 2010 until 2013 at. Uh, at SCAD in, in SCAD Hong Kong uh, then I decided that I need a little break and I need to concentrate on my own work I, mean, I was teaching there for eight years straight that uh, was eight years? that was eight years wow. of, of teaching straight oh. from after grad school and three years in three Hong years Kong. in Hong Kong yeah. five years in New York and Boston before. oh okay, okay. Uh, and I felt like I'm getting a little impatient with students no oh. and that's not a good sign <laughs> right and I really wanted to take some time for my own work so I decided to l- with my job in Hong Kong, moved to Israel for the first time after 17 years that I, almost 17 years that I wasn't there, uh, and tried to live there as an adult, as a photographer, as an educator, as an artist. Uh, spent the first year just in the studio, cataloging, scanning thousands of negatives from Hong Kong, from all formats, trying to organize them, trying to work on a couple of publications, did a one show in Israel. Um, and then this is my second year in Israel now, and I started teaching this year already. Oh, where are you teaching? I'm teaching at HIT, which is the Holon Institute of Technology, which mm. is in South Tel Aviv. It's a technological and design uh, college. Uh, so I t- start teaching there. This year I'm going to teach there in another Arab-Israeli high school on the Mediterranean. I'm going to do one day a week there. And might be another college that will take me for a class this coming year. This is yet to be determined, but... Yeah, how so was it? So how how was it returning to Israel after that amount of time to to live? Not easy. <laughs> <laughs> I can say that this is the most foreign and familiar um, place I've ever been to after 17 years of not living there. You know, I grew up in Jerusalem. I graduated from high school. I did my mandatory military service. But since I've been, since I was 21, not even 22, I did not live in Israel. And my entire artistic photographic uh, career was done in the United States, and it's very much based on American photography and American history. 
uh, on the English language. And coming back to Israel and trying to fit into a, 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 in a culture that I was never really part of. I never went to school there. I never taught there. I never exhibited really in Israel. I didn't know this curator and that director and so on and so forth. It's, 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 you know, and it's, it's weird because I speak the language. You know, I know some people, but at the same time, I feel like a foreigner. So it hasn't been that easy. And I'm trying to work it out and I'm, I don't want to make any statements on, on your podcast, but I might stay there, I might not. Okay, yeah. yeah. I, I don't know. But you when know. you were working on Aftermath, you would, that's, you were traveling there during right. what, the summers or something? I was traveling or? twice a year, mm-hmm. uh, winter and summer, to photograph. Um, and I did that for three and a half years. Yeah. And you'd go back to visit family and right. stuff. My so. entire extended family is there, my parents, my brother and sister, nieces and nephews. So I, I did go to Israel, but when you go for a visit and it's like... A, yeah, you're a the very special sp- person, right. you're coming and in. You're running in happy. and you're having drinks with this and you're going for dinner with that right. and everybody wants to hear and you're telling the self-story usually. But it's not like getting up in the morning and get a letter from the, the IRS... Or go to uh, you know to get service or to to buy something or to talk to a curator or trying to put together an exhibition or try to find fund, funding or a job to that extent you know I'm completely anonymous and coming in sending all these emails like well I've been in the past 17 years I you know I've taught at Columbia and I went to grad school and I taught in Boston and then I in Queens and I was in Germany for a year and then Hong Kong for three years and I ran a department and all these things that sound to me just like story of my the past 17 years and they might actually might sound a little intimidating to the local a little overqualified maybe I, I, or, or I don't too know big over, a career maybe yes maybe too too worldly hmm. rather than you know we, we we've been here for like the past 34 years hmm. you know eating <laughs> biting our, our tongues and, and doing all these things and you've been traveling all around and teaching here and doing this and doing that and and i don't have i never had any kind of interest of intimidating anyone but when, when I'm thinking about it, it sounds maybe a little, mm-hmm. maybe pompous. Not that I ever tried or wanted to do that. Right. But I mean, your, your CV is your CV. You, you should be proud of it. You should be proud of your I accomplishments. I am very proud of it. Yeah. I'm very proud of it. And I'm actually, I'm proud of being in Israel right now and teach there. And this is the first time I ever teach in Hebrew. Wow. In 10 years. <laughs> this is, and it's kind of weird. Hmm. You know, sometimes F-16. I have... F-16. <laughs> right. And then what do you, how do you actually, there are certain terminology things that you, yeah. you it's really hard, difficult. I know my, my experience in Israel was there, there are a lot of technical words that are the same in English and in Hebrew. I mean, or, or in, in Hebrew, they adopt newer words in English. Yeah. Right? Right. I, I will say, I will say mm-hmm. that. And it's true also in, you know, you can find it in Holland as well, too. Mm-hmm. And Germany, and definitely, in, but even the English words that we refer to, like aperture, we have to remember that comes from Italian, too. right? Apertura, <laughs> right? right? <laughs> uh, so, I, and photography is, you know, uh, probably the most universal language we can we can actually talk. Not when we talk about it, mm-hmm. but when we're looking at pictures, right? Right. Um, but it's interesting sometimes, and I try not to to move into English when I, when I talk to my students. And sometimes I will, I will talk and, you know, you're always like five, six seconds ahead with what you want to write mentally. And then I, I predict already that I, there is a word that I'm not really sure how to say it in Hebrew. So I will slow down my <laughs> speech until I find the word and then I'll continue. <laughs> you know? Sort of warm up to it, ramp right. up to exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> to not create any kind of gap in the, 
<laughs> but it's, it's been interesting. And, you know, and I did show my work there a couple of times in the past year. There are two more shows that I'm preparing now for this fall in Israel. For the first time, I'm going to show in an Israeli museum. Hey, I have a few of your uh, panoramic photos here. You hey. do. Thank you very much for holding on to that. Then, no you know, problem. I can hold on to them. You already—they they were exhibited already in three places. Oh, uh, Miami, four. Four. So, four. so New Orleans was the first one. This, so we're talking about the the Panorama show exhibit, right. exhibit that's been traveling around that we're all a part of, done with the the Panorama camera. And so it started out in Photonola in New Orleans, mm -hmm. right? And then it went to Miami. Yep. Dade, right? Miami Dade, right? Then, then to it, Columbia. Then Columbia, to Columbia, and then down to uh, little Mercer County Community Mercer College. County, right. Where, where and this work, is the right. fourth place. And yeah. I did talk to a couple of people in Israel to actually show it. Mm -hmm. We talked about it briefly through email. Uh, we just need to find funding for that. Yeah. Uh, to ship the work there. Because I think there is, is, it's important work. It's not only because of pictures, but I think it has to do something about the act of making photographs, the act of you know creating certain heritage and, and an instrument that so many photographers from different places with different styles have used, right? right. And, and I think it actually is very important. It's not just what the pictures that we are dealing with, not only what we're looking at, but also the history of this instrument and what actually it means uh, and to celebrate, you know, the act of photographing maybe even. Sure, absolutely. And we're talking about the the camera built by Tom Roma, right. right? The panorama camera. The one by three. Right. right. <laughs> so you said you, you started your artistic life here in the States, in Boston. So in high school, photography wasn't... Oh, no, no. I or? actually started photographing when I was 12. Oh. Like, you know, um, I was in seventh grade and I had this friend that um, we used to uh, go out to the woods and capture scorpions and <laughs> spiders and stuff like that. Uh, and then later on, we started to do a little more uh, dangerous things like creating little rockets out of tubes mm -hmm. with, uh, you know, anything we could find. And he was really interested in photographing all these things. And he had a Chinon camera, mm -hmm. which is kind of, a, I guess it's a Chinese mock of Canon. And he has this Chinon camera that he got from his father that just came back from China. And I saw him photographing with it and I asked him, can I actually borrow that for a couple of days and i and i went in the first two roles i photographed and i was not even 13 i was 12 um were flowers my my mother had a garden and she had flowers there and i had a 50 millimeter lens i will get at probably around you know foot and a half two feet away from these flowers and throw everything as out of focus <laughs> um and i made this Two rows, I photographed these two rows of film and I went to the photo store and you got it within a day or two. Or, And I had those four by six prints and I showed it to my mother and she was really thrilled. And she's like, oh, how beautiful and how this. And, and I was thinking, oh, that was, wasn't that hard. <laughs> uh, I didn't it, have to build a rocket or anything. Yeah. Right. It was like, you know, I just got closer to those flowers. And, and, and let's and be honest, it was your mother. And it was my mother, exactly. <laughs> and I wasn't sure, and I wasn't really sure if, if it was her because she was my mother. She was so supportive, and she should be supportive. Or they're really pretty. And, I, and, I, and, I, and back then, I was like, well, that was not too difficult for me to do. Maybe I'm onto something here. Maybe I, can, I, I actually found something that I, that I do well that will wouldn't take me that much effort, you know? <laughs> uh, and, and then when I was 13, I had my bar mitzvah and I, I got some money for, from, you know, different families and I bought my first used uh, Minolta 35 millimeter camera. Hmm. Uh, I co-bought it with my brother. <laughs> uh, 
uh, who was much older than me, but I think he was just doing me a favor. He just chipped in, so I will have a camera because I don't think nice. he ever taught it, ever, <laughs> ever, ever touched used it, it, ever right. used it. Um, yeah, and then I, you know, I started photographing, and I and I wanted to, and I thought that I I bought this photography guide, and this was the first time that I ever seen a Harry Callahan Elite 300 photograph. Uh, they were in this manual as examples for shallow depth of field or long depth mm. of field or something like that, deep depth of field. Nice. And that was the first time that I saw a Callahan and a Freelander uh, in that book. And they also explained how to develop film there. And I thought that I can do it. And I sneaked into the uh, Israeli Museum photo lab because <laughs> uh, I had a friend who took a class there. And I walked into the, uh, you know, loading room and I took the film out and I just wrapped it around the reels <laughs> and, and put it inside the tank and put all these chemicals and did all the thing and hope for the best and nothing came out. <laughs> uh, so that was the first failure. And then I decided, well, maybe you should take a class. Uh, so and then I started taking classes and I was actually doing that until end of high school at the museum no i was i was attending an afternoon uh, workshops at the jerusalem school of photography which was very new at the time so i was going to regular high school sometimes skipping classes in order to go to a dark room to print uh, and i did that all the way until end of high school uh, then you know the three-year military service that i had was not the most you know creative mm -hmm. i would say Oh, so yeah, you didn't have you didn't do any photography while i did you were... I, in the first few months i i was actually in a unit uh f dealing with with aerial photography for the air force because of my previous experiences i didn't really like it and i wanted to be on in the field and uh, i had this heroic idea and my father was a paratrooper uh, was a trooper in the parachute you know corps and my brother was in the armory uh, armed corps and I had this idea that I should not be doing that as part of my service. And after a few months in the aerial photography unit, I, uh, I wanted to move and I joined Airborne Infantry. Hmm. And that's where, where I spent the last two and a half years of my, of my service. And only coming back after the service, a year later, I came to New York. And that was really the time that photography got back to me in some sense. I was, I, you know. So I, you, you didn't have a portfolio from when you applied to MassArt? You didn't have a portfolio no, from but back then? Uh, MassArt actually got there, you know, a couple of years later because while the first year that I was in New York, getting back to photography, I would walk the streets and I would make the street pictures and I got to see galleries and shows and museums and all these things that I was not really exposed to. And this really opened my eyes. Um, and then after more than a year in New York, I decided that I want to go to school. And I applied to SVA and to uh, the NYU T School of Arts, and they accepted me. And then they, they and then I guess I did not see the tuition cost there. <laughs> and as soon as I got the first pay stab for that, I was like, uh, I can afford that. I don't know who can, but I cannot, and my parents cannot. So I was looking for a different school, and I found the New England School of Photography in Boston. Uh, I sent some pictures that I made in New York and I was printing in Chelsea. You could actually rent a darkroom for like six, seven dollars an hour. And I was printing there and I sent them some samples and they asked me to come up for an interview and I took the bus up to Boston and they accepted me. 
and I moved from New York to Boston in so the, 1998. Oh, that's just what I was going to ask. Um, I pretty much... Little did you know you'd be spending so much of your life taking buses, buses. from Boston Later on, to exactly. New York. Later on, exactly. This was the first <laughs> time I took this, you know, 220-mile <laughs> bus ride. You know... Uh, How quaint. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> fast, fast forward, uh, what was it, eight years uh, later... From 2005 until 2010, I will be traveling on a regular basis from New York to mm -hmm. Boston every Thursday, coming back every Saturday to teach two classes in Boston. Actually, I think that when I finished these five years, I calculated that I could have circled the earth three <laughs> times <laughs> with the mileage I did for five years taking the bus every week to Boston and back. And you know what? And it sounds much worse than what it is, but it's not. Mm -hmm. It was this 10 hours a week that I could stare out of the window, I could read, I could sleep, I can do all these other things that I didn't have when I was teaching four or five classes a week. And I did Mercer too at the yes, time. Yes, I remember. I, I taught yes. one class at Mercer and that was either... Was that the, the Saturday class? Yes, it yes. was the Saturday class. So I would come back from Boston in time <laughs> oh, to get up Saturday morning and go teach at Mercer. And it was sometimes on the motorcycle I would go there and then it became really too cold. That's right. Uh, and then I would take the train down to Trenton. So yeah, so that was the first time. So I moved to Boston, fast forward, I did two years of photography school there. I graduated. Uh, I started working for a couple of music magazines. I did not like it at all. <laughs> you know, they, they, I was photographing people I'm not interested in. And then the art director will always pick the wrong picture from the role. <laughs> and then you have to wait 60 days to get paid. Right. And I was like, I don't want any part of that. So I applied for uh, mass art for uh, BFA program. And so yeah, the, the NISOP program was more commercial photographer. Yes, definitely. Right? Yeah. There, there's no academic you know, requirement there. Uh, you will take three classes of photography for each term. That's a New England program. Yeah, right. New England School of Photography. Right. Uh, no, it doesn't have any kind of art component in it. You could actually go in your second year more into the fine art, black and white and color, and this is what I did. Uh, but it's definitely oriented towards careers. Right. Um, and that didn't really work for me. So I, I started, you know, I went to Mass Art and did my BFA there and started with, you know, titans of our, you know, 21st century f American photography, you can say, scene. People like Frank Golke and people like Abe Morel and Nick Nixon and Laura McPhee and Barbara Bosworth and all these people that I studied and then later on taught with. This was really, I think, a very important period coming to New York later on from grad school and then working with Tom for two years and then meeting Tom's, you know, milieu of, of photographers and artists was another amazing uh, period. And I think that with these two stages, that really set me up for who I am right now and what I do in terms of photography. Is, is some of that experience your basis for the My American Life project? Yes. My American Life was actually uh, an accumulation of, of hundreds of photographs that I made between 97 and 2010. When I left to Hong Kong in 2010, I wasn't sure if I'd be back. And I felt like I need to somehow summarize my 13 years of experiences in the United States specifically. And I think that this is very much clearer in this, this my American life, which is in parenthesis my, mm -hmm. because it's also American life is very much influenced from what we call American photography. Mm -hmm. There are pictures there that are definitely making homage to the, you know, 
the Gary big Winogrand and, Winogrand and Levitt Sharkovsky. and Sharkovsky and definitely Evans there uh, and and people that we really that I grew up on their heritage I never met any one of them uh, but I did meet disciples you know people that studied with now, them. wait a minute you did meet helen levitt though right i did meet I'm, yes come on <laughs> not only you that i met up a, was it a refrigerator or an air not only that's it's true <laughs> come on it's true i met <laughs> helen levitt i shook her hand i spoke with her a little bit and i carried her refrigerator yeah. all the way up to like fourth floor was it yeah uh, yes. it was equivalent of that yeah yes. uh, I, I did meet helen levitt and this is something that i'm, I'm actually very uh proud and yes. thankful to Tom for introducing me to Helen. And I did meet John Sharkovsky. Yeah. I arguably, maybe, uh, I made the last portrait of, mm. of John. I think a few months before, before he actually uh, passed had away. Had a stroke. Yeah. He had a stroke, right. And then it took some time. But, and this photograph is part of the Addison Gallery of American Art. Mm. Uh, the John Sharkovsky portrait I made in his house. So yes, but by my American life was definitely homage to American photography and to the, the, the foundations that I had as a photographer. It was all black and white. Uh, it was a mix between 4x5, 6.7, and 35. Um, it was, they were all silver prints made in a dark room. Um, and since then, actually, it's got enlarged and enlarged in terms of the scope of pictures that I made in America. And I definitely need to update that because I, I like that. Uh, no, it's a beautiful project and, and, and beautiful homages to those influences. Great. Thank you. So we got in on your origins, then you went at Mass Art, then you came here, then you started teaching. Yoav's also is one for statistics. So like that thing about how many times around the world, you also recently told me another statistic about number of classes taught. Do you remember? Right. Yes. Yeah. This is something I just when I I'm here now in the United States for the entire summer for artist residency. But I, I finished the last uh, semester in, in Tel Aviv and at the end of the semester I for the first time I actually made a group portrait of all the students in my class there were seven, 17 of them in my class um, taking documentary photography with me and at the end of class after last critique I took them out to the yard of the, of the university and I, I and I made a four by five portrait of all of them together and after that and I, I kind of I started thinking about you know how many classes I've taught and what would I, I should have just made a photograph of every group of students that I ever had. Because since 2005, since I graduated Columbia, I've taught 94 photography courses. <laughs> you know, 94 photography courses in three different countries, uh, four different countries, sorry. Uh, seven different universities, probably eight different universities. Um, and, and all of a sudden you realize that, you know, that means that I had probably around 2,000 or more students, mm -hmm. you know, and that's, that's quite amazing, you know, and this is why I have so many friends on Facebook, you know, probably <laughs> the old, old former students. Uh, <laughs> um, no, but this is, this is true. This is, you know, I, I like this. It, it's, you know, it, you're right, Kai. It's something that I, I do. I'm not, I don't think I get attached to, but something about numbers and something about statistics mm. uh, gives us a certain quote-unquote, uh, neutral perspective over our life. You know what I mean? This is why we weigh ourselves. This is why we measure our height, our age. 
you know this is why I anyhow when I and I like sometimes when I travel to go to cemeteries and photograph there and the first thing I'm looking at is how old were they right. when you they died? Right, you always look at those dates. Right? right, or you go to an exhibition and you see their biography, and then you say, when they were 23, they did blow. And then you start thinking about, when I, well, what did I do when I was 23? You know, And it's always a matter of this, maybe, it's comparing. Thing. Measuring, comparing. Measuring, exactly. Right, right. And when you have statistics, like, you know, just like the fact that I remember that Robert Frank stated that when he came back from his two years of... Uh, uh, photographing the Americans, he came back with 763 rolls of film. You know, what does it really matter if it's <laughs> 763 or 821 or six? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, but something about numbers and something about giving a certain pace in life, just like the number of classes, the number of mileage that you do, uh, the number of roles, the number of exhibitions, the number of universities, how old you are. Uh, and you know, and some people measure it in their income, and some others with you know number of games they attended or number of Star Wars figurines they have, right? Just to, to back up a little bit, you became interested in photography. I think you said you were seventh or eighth grade, or uh, seventh grade. Seventh yeah. grade, right? Did, did you carry that through high school? Yes, yes. So I was taking those classes. I was photographing my friends. Uh, uh, photograph some of you know uh, class. Uh, pictures of you know senior class but then then when i was in the military it was not really i, I think i photographed four rolls of film in, right in more than two years I, this is not and real photography and you became more interested in jumping out of planes i, I became more interested in, I, I don't know what i was interested in frankly you know this was like more than 20 years ago and, uh, but but i think that definitely you know f- photography is much more than uh, in making photographs for me you know photography has been an alternative living space almost, you know, looking at photographs and looking at the narratives and the stories and what you actually can get from a photograph many times felt to me like more interesting than life itself. Uh, and this is an old argument between photographers. Can a photograph can ever be better than life itself or life is always better? Is a photograph of a person could be better than the actual person? Or worse, right? And this is something that we do as photographers all the time. We altering, we compressing bridges into, you know, a five by seven, you know, inch plate. We are we are doing that all the time. We take pictures and we make them into passport photographs. We cataloging things. We changing. This is what uh, where we stand is kind of about too creating a certain narrative from a pre-prescribed place. And so, yeah, so photography for me is a, is, was always a way to interpret the world and maybe even looking at a different or alternative uh, existence to some extent, you know. And this is what's really exciting to me, for me in photography. And this was, I was always trying to pass that on to my students, you know, that photography is, is an interpretation of life. You should never treat it as life because it's not. Life is different. It's three-dimensional you know, it's sharper. It <laughs> smells bad. Smells bad. <laughs> smells good. You know, you can hear life. You can do all these things. And eventually, when you're looking, you're looking at a, you know an eight by ten flat two-dimensional surface. You know, which is a fraction of a much longer continuous timeline. And we always have to acknowledge that. But this is what makes it so, I think, so beautiful and so important. 
and and things changed you know obviously in the past 10 years photography is not what it was 10 years ago and photography is not what it was 100 years ago i know a lot of photographers resisting the digital revolution let's call it or progress but this we have to remember that this is exactly what happened in the 1920s when roll film cameras coming right, out the, hand, the small handheld camera yeah, the Leica oh, the you're co- not a photographer Kodak, you right. don't have to go into a tent and <laughs> right. coat your collodion plate <laughs> right you're just putting 36 exposures you're not a photographer and before that it was this argument between photographers and painters so it's always going to move in. It's, it's always forward. been technology-based, and it's always been very much market-driven. Yes. I mean, we, the equipment we use and hang on to was, was equipment that at some point, for the most part, I mean, when we're talking about 35-millimeter cameras and even you know, four, by camera, 4 by 5 cameras, mm-hmm. right? These, this was equipment that was commercially successful and viable, right? right? That uh, you know, more art, fine art photographers, you know, documentary-style photographers, you know, hold on to and, and have, have co-opted as their own, as you know uh the technology has moved on right and so some photographers keep embracing newer and newer technology and some photographers hold on to the equipment that serves them well yeah you know and and i think we should embrace and accept it as part of natural progression too there's no point in resisting it because it is moving forward whether we want it or not and as teachers we we have to teach it yes yeah yes and you know and make sure that or try to help students make good usage of that tool Rather than selfie sticks, right? Right. <laughs> yes. Which could be, you know, then again, you know, I remember Someone years could come ago, up with something. Tom right. was working on this project where he attached a BESA camera to a stick, which is modern day selfie stick. He was just using it vertically. A from, very long pole. Right. Yes. Very long pole. It's the exact same thing. It's all these ideas how to reinvent picture making, maybe, in a sense, you know, same as spy cameras and same with TLRs and SLRs and view cameras and finders and different lenses and different coatings and all these things that are essentially tools to interpret life. Right. And getting back to the idea of how we read the photograph, I mean, photography has always been so many different things to start. I mean, whether it's commercial photography, Mm -hmm. documentary photography, photojournalism, you know, sports photography, then, you know, landscape photography and street photography. And uh, so it's, it's been multifaceted for a very long time. And, and when you talk about whether, you know, telling your students, you know, is this a, a better than the experience, the same as the experience? Is it worse than the experience? The audience you're speaking to is, and the kind of photography it is, really uh, dictates that conversation as well. I mean, if you're photographing an, an event that's so big, a, a war, a, a parade, a, you know, people uh, might be inclined to think it's, it can't, it could never replicate that experience. And then you might say, well, we're not trying to replicate that experience, right? right? We're, we're creating interpreting something. It. Right. Interpreting it and creating something different, something mm-hmm. new. Right. This, this is, yeah, this is what makes photography exciting to me, you know. The fact that it's not, it's, you know, every photograph is a document. And this is one of the first things I talk to my documentary class. You know, this notion of documentary photography being an objective view or a non-affected view of the world. And very clearly, very and very quickly, after having an hour of slide conversation and slide talk, uh, that I'm, I'm, you know, showing them slides and talk about pictures and talk about history of photography, and we get to the conclusion that every photograph is a document. Every photograph is a proof, quote unquote, that something happened. Even a photogram, this is what happened on this piece of paper on, you know, in the studio of Man Ray, you know in a certain time with a certain objects. So every photograph is a document, but no document is actually truthful, you know. 
because there's always the choice of cameras and choice of what to photograph and when to photograph and what's what do I bring into this mix in terms of my baggage and my perception of the world? Um, so every photograph is a document, but it's not a truthful document. You know, it's an interpretation of the world, whether it's a completely staged photograph or to what we call a candid photograph. That even a candid photograph is, it's, maybe it's candid, but it's not unaffected. You know, even a security camera depends who puts in what direction it sees certain angle of life. And our interpretation can change under different contexts. Completely. You know, this, this is something that I actually see now more when I, when I am in Israel. You know, um, how do they see a photograph versus how American students or how Hong Kongese students or German students look at a photograph? Well, you've, you've taught in a, a number of different countries. Have you, have you experienced that? Well, you know, now, now, now so for, uh, you know, uh, teaching in Israel, my undergrad students are older than my American undergrad students. Uh, they went through years of military. They, sometimes they took some time off between high school. So they're in their mid-20s. It's like teaching at Mercer. It's like teaching at Mercer, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's true, actually, even teaching at Mercer. This is actually a very good example. This is actually something that you know, more people maybe can understand or relate to. But teaching at a community college versus teaching at Columbia University, the same week with the same age students, but one of them you know, came from a house where they have to actually get out and work when they were 13 or 14. So when you show them pictures of Louis Hine children at work, they can maybe understand it a little bit better than somebody that actually their only job was maybe to wash their parents' car and get a couple of dollars for that as a token of appreciation. Right. Actually, it's funny you bring that up because I was just thinking of the coal breakers photos as photos that, that actually changed an in interpretation where they were actually made to kind of show off this factory and then later used as evidence of, of abuse of children. Exactly. Right. Exactly. That's what Louis Hine was after. This is what Jacob Rees was after, and these are probably one of the few examples of in history of photography that pictures actually change something because they changed the law against child labor and, and tenements and, and all these things. But of course that, you know, that we all view photographs and, and history differently, and when it's closer to you, when it's further away from you, you will view it differently. Uh, and within a couple of miles, what is Mercer and Columbia are, you know, 10 miles now, no, 20 no, miles. No, 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 apart? 20, well, the 20 there's, miles, there's if you just draw a line, it's, you know, it's isn't it? It's flies, maybe. Yeah. I think what is it They're like? probably about 60 miles away from each other. You think? Yeah. I don't I, remember I that. Yeah, I was about to say, if anyone knows, Michael. <laughs> yes, I know. I know. Well, I did drive it, too, just like so many years ago. And right. it always felt so close because you're literally just crossing the That's river. That's because you were on a motorcycle. <laughs> so even 60 miles, this is nothing. Oh, right. No, This no, is absolutely right. nothing, 60 right. miles, you know. And, but you see that, you know, even now when I'm in, I'm in Israel, I, I did this project between my college students to these Arab-Israeli high school students. And they live literally 30 miles apart. They've never been to each other's neighborhood. They'd never spoke to an Arab person or to a Jewish person. They never knew that, and their project was literally each one of them will photograph, each group of students will photograph their life, their culture, their path to school, what they do, what they eat. You know, and for the first time they shared it. And you're talking about people that live literally, you know, an hour away from each other. They had actually, and photography was a great tool for that to bridge this, this 30 or 40 miles, you know. This is exactly where photography was very useful. 
more useful than selfie pictures probably you know if we actually go down that aisle again but um <laughs> if, <laughs> Uh, I'm hoping this is a word that's going to die out. There must be I like, hope so too. I, there must be some great old like words that you know people use when they're making ten type photographs of themselves right. that, that we don't know that's anymore. Right. That we're cutesy, and I'm hoping that no, I, I think that the we devil should, stick. We should, yeah. we, we should start maybe uh, you know talk to them more and rather than selfie, call it selfish, <laughs> right? Because as soon as they pull this poll of things they do that they. You know, exclude the entire world. It's all about me. Yeah. It's all about me in this position. Well, the best description I've heard so far is the wand of Narcissus. That's right. Yes, yeah. it is. Yeah, that's so much it totally is. You know, but you'll have, you know, I, I, so I've been listening a lot during this podcast, and, um, you know, it's clear that you love photography and that you're, the way you talk about it, even you're, you know, it's, it's very lofty and, and like reasons for life and all of that. And, um, and looking at the work and talking about the projects and how integrated they are in your life. But I also think um, should talk a little bit about how we talk about photographers and their approach to the medium. And you're, you mentioned that you always have at least one camera on you and that when you travel, you know, you often are like your suitcases are filled with all of these cameras and all these things. Yeah, I think photographers divide up into different camps and how they approach it. And I've seen you take, like, whip out the camera just the other day on Saturday, like people walking by and you pull out the six by seven camera and stop people and get them to, you know, line up against the wall and, and make a portrait of them. And I've seen you take out the 35 millimeter camera and take, you know, what would be almost, I imagine, probably going to function as a, as a memory for that an occasion or something, right? right. So it's not always... The photography with the capital P, like, you know, making the momentous event. And I haven't looked closely at the uh, My American Life photographs, but I imagine some of those photographs probably came out of those moments. Of, of course, of the like majority of pulling them. the camera out and like, oh my, you know, exactly. we're sitting around having dinner or we're doing this or, you know, some event like, you know, when we were out on a boat together at Tom's country house, I remember you had the camera and you were photographing, right. you know. And so there's also this idea that thinking about it all the time or, or being willing to pull out the camera and make photographs that, you know, aren't going to be... Uh, We're never, no one ever going to see them. Yeah, exactly. And the majority of my pictures, no one ever gets to see. But, you know, it's a very good point. And, and I think that why I'm actually interested in that is not only... There is a moment when I photograph, when I'm looking through a viewfinder, uh, it's such... It's, it's, a, it's just a different world for me. It's safer to some extent. Looking through a two-dimensional window... You know, well, when you look in it through a window, usually you see everything two-dimensional. And it feels like, you know, your, your entire experience is now dedicated for this rectangle that you're looking at right now. But one of the things that I like the most are going to the darkroom, develop the film, and then recall those moments. Mm. Look in this picture and it was like, ah, yeah. Because sometimes it takes weeks, sometimes even months before I get into the darkroom and I, and I process a whole batch of film. And, and this excitement of looking at a, a piece of film that has an interpretation of an event or something that I was experiencing myself with friends even, it's something that I'm very much interested in. It's true that I photograph much more than I would ever show. It's true that I photograph a lot of crap too. That are a lot of things that I'm not interested in later on. Well, I also remember you were staying with me about a year ago, I think, and you're walking through my darkroom where I also have negatives and contact sheets and binders, and you were kind of shocked. You're like, that's it? That's all your bind? That's it? Like, you don't have more film? You know, like, 
you know, it was a little bit like, wait a minute, you know, that's that's like two years of my, I've got binders for that's like a two year period. And you call yourself a photographer. Exactly. No, and, and so, you know, with the exception of like this one project I did photographing a roll of film every day that my 40th year, that isn't how I usually, I'm, I, right. I go out the door with the camera like on purpose. To photograph. To photograph, right. exactly. And uh, like the idea of processing film of photographs of like, you know, throwaway moments or something. It's like, oh my, you know, why, I, I, that would kill me, you know, or something, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, ah, these, this roll of film, I'm going to have to sit here for an hour and process and wash and make contact sheets of. It's better have something, you know, great on it or great whatever. Great on it. Yeah, right. you know. But, uh, the, but then again, you're going to have a record of all of these other things from your life that, right. that I want to that, that I usually wouldn't even look back at, but, um, but, it's but it's true. I, I and this is part of the reason why I probably you know photograph with three to four different formats. This is why mm. I work with both color and black and white. This is why I think that I'm afraid that if I'm pointing my camera in one direction and becoming quote unquote a landscape photographer or a portrait photographer or uh, you know with one project, the entire world is passing behind me unnoticed. You know, and I don't like that. I like the fact to to maybe to get the most out of that, you know. So at, at any given moment, I also work in with three or four different projects with three or four different formats too. I might actually work on it for a couple of weeks and then put it aside and then get back to it a few months later. And it's true that I, I photograph constantly with a small format, not constant. well, often. You know, my these trips to, you know, the, you know how many rolls of film I have on the bus from New York to Boston <laughs> on a weekly basis. I had this idea of actually making a body of work of that. My travels, you know. Sure. The Fang Hua experience, right. you know. Fang Hua is a Chinatown, Chinatown bus. bus yeah. that I was taking regularly. Before you switched to Lucky or whatever. And then I switched to Lucky and then I switched to Megabus, you know. And the experience was changing. And, they, they, and you know what really changed is the population on the bus. Mm. When you're taking the Fang Hua and when you're taking the Megabus, this is different demographics, a different cost. It lives from a different part of town and it arrives in a different part of town, yeah. you know. And this was something, I, I was photographing people. I was photographing the view. I was photographing people with bags, you know, with baskets full of groceries going up from Boston to New York or vice versa. So I was photographing that. I'm also, you know, underwater, mm. you know. This is was done during vacation time and I would still take a camera down with me and... Usually, we'll photograph black and white, which is completely counterintuitive to the beautiful Lenny Riffin style underwater world, <laughs> right? Colorful and Jacques Cousteau and all that. And while we'll make all those landscape pictures, pretty much, lying on the bottom of the ocean and, and making a landscape photograph with black and white film, looking at this terrain like it was above water, and as soon as you don't have green or blue, it's very ambiguous. Um, Yes, it's true. It, it's definitely true. And in, in Hong Kong, three years of living there, I worked on five different things. One of them was much more candid because it concerned the expat community in Hong Kong, which I was part of. So I would go to expat, expat event. It's weird to say that, but <laughs> parties that are hosted by expatriates or, or events or places of hangout, or I would go out and I will have a camera with me and I will photograph. These while. are international communities in Hong Kong. Right, right. And I was part of them because, you know, I was an international, you know, I was there on assignment basically for three years. And I would photograph pretty much whatever I experienced. I was not thinking about the project, 
only later on when you're looking over and all these rolls of film and plates and, and contact sheets, you realize that, well, there is something actually pretty consistent here that I've been photographing, you know. And there are other place, times, like just like how Kai works, that I will go specifically to photograph. The project that I'm now working on in Tel Aviv, two projects I'm working on in Tel Aviv, one is about this very small immigrant community and migrant workers living in one small, less than one square mile of a neighborhood in southern Tel Aviv. And I will go out there with a 4x5, with, on my shoulder, strapped, you know, attached already to a tripod, and roam around the neighborhood, talk to people and photographing them. Is it multinational, or are they all coming yes, from... Yes, okay. in this very tiny neighborhood, there are more than 40 different wow. nationalities, anywhere from Southeast Asians uh, to Eastern Europeans, Africans... Uh, Israelis, Arabs, um, Russians, you know. They and come looking for work. They come looking for work. Some of them actually crossed the border from Egypt as, you know, infiltrators. That's mm. how uh, the police will treat them. It, did this, this come about in, in part because of restrictions put on Palestinians now coming into work? Y yes, you, you can say that. In the past 15 years, Israel probably reduced dramatically the amount of Palestinians' work permits. Uh, so... Israel had to actually import foreign workers, which resulted in years of Thai and Chinese workers uh, being, you know, the main source of, of, of labor for the agricultural and the construction industry. Uh, but then, you know, we know what's happening in the past five, ten years in Africa. We know that, I, I just read about it the other day, and I would love to share with you some statistics and numbers. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Currently, worldwide, there are 60 million people that are dis misplaced. Mm. Like, you know, whether well, they, they moved from one country oh, to okay. another because of civil wars, because of hardship, because mm -hmm. of, uh, you know, famine, all those things. 14 million out of these 60 millions uh, joined these 60 millions in 2014. Wow. You, you're talking about, you know, a quarter of them, of this world population of refugees and asylum seekers that just joined this number in one year in 2014. And this is something that, you know, we know what's happening in the Middle East right now, in Syria, in Iraq, and Yemen, and Palestinian Authority, and Egypt. We know what's happening in Rwanda, and Western Africa, and Northern Africa, and, you know, those boats of uh, immigrants coming from Africa to Europe. But we don't really get to see it on a daily basis. Well, Part I do because I live in Bushwick and I get to see the number of hipsters coming from Williamsburg to Bushwick. So Bushwick I like, yeah. In the last year, it's at least doubled. I wouldn't call them displaced. <laughs> yes. It's a different kind of refugee. But, yeah. you know, there are, it's true. The United States uh, received 400,000 immigrants sure. in the past five years coming from battle zones. And the, and the sex slave trade is, is a big problem here as it is everywhere. You know, and this what really this neighborhood in Tel Aviv, it's less than one square kilometer, mile. It's 10 minute walk for where I live. You know, you don't get to see them if you are in my neighborhood in Tel Aviv. But as soon as you're crossing the street, you know, we talk about the other side of tracks, right? You will get to see people from Somalia and Rwanda and Eritrea and, and China and Thailand and the Philippines and all these other nationalities. And what they suffer the most from is prejudice, you know, because people really don't know anything about them, you know. The, the other day when we were at the uh, 4th of July party, and we are these friends of ours in Brooklyn, mm. and, and I overheard a conversation behind me, and this guy said, well, I spent my childhood water skiing in Barbados. 
and then I stopped for a second, <laughs> and I was with my with Amy there, my friend, and and I tell well, and I and I said um, I should go there and say, well, I spent my childhood in a refugee camp in Rwanda, you know, fighting over a loaf of bread. How do you like that? You know, which I didn't. But when I, when I heard him talking about water skiing in Barbados, spent my childhood water skiing in Barbados, you know, how far that could be, right. you know, from the experience of millions of other kids, tens of millions of other kids worldwide, you know. And it's true. I traveled a lot and I photographed in a lot of countries and I've seen a lot of places and I got bitten by a rabid dog in Myanmar and I got to, to do all these other things in my life. But I got to see a lot of people with completely different life and lifestyle and concerns, you know. I'm not saying this is better than others, but it's definitely different and definitely should be acknowledged. So these two projects, as I said, going back to how it's all started, I'm actually going out there to photograph. One are these, this neighborhood, Neve Shanan, which is called Serene Oasis. This is the literal translation wow, of, that's of the name twisted. of the neighborhood. <laughs> when you take this you know, name of the neighborhood and wow. translate, that's right. Serene Oasis. Uh, and the other one is that I'm photographing uh, Tel Aviv transition in terms of architecture, in terms of mm. renovation. Tel Aviv is built upon 1920s until 1950s Bauhaus architecture mostly. But in the past 15 years, there's a, well, there is a lot of construction, new construction and a lot of renovation. And you can see it in every street. And I start photographing that on a regular basis to see how the city kind of changes, which, you know, in a sense, I'm, I have Ajay in mind mm. to some extent, how he tried to capture Paris before That transition of Paris. Right, right. Exactly. And then we have, uh, you know... Uh, Changing New York, um, Abbott, Bernice Abbott, you know, Changing New York project and how people actually trying to hold on to a change before, uh, before it actually disappears in front of our eyes. And this is what photography does, right? It freezes, it, it preserves, it it's puts something in our family albums or in our historical context. So these are projects that I do work out there to photograph. And there are yeah. things that I... In my, my suitcase, you know, that will take it out and photograph, you know, uh, portraits of people going to 4th of July parties. Just because, you know, it's part of what I experienced too. And it's something that might fit one day to my American life as well, right? Right. Uh, and it happens, you know, and I was at, at the other party there in, on the same day and I was making, there was a big American flag. And there were at least three different people that I asked, can I photograph you in front of the American flag? I don't know if this picture will be successful, but something about that. And then one of them grabbed one of those shovels and was like, oh, I'm going to do an American oh. Gothic. Mm. You know, so I did. He was like, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> so I made two pictures of him with American Gothic. Like, now, can, can you now put it down do now? Let's do something else, right? Now, now let's come back to 2015. <laughs> okay. But yes, it's true. And it's, it's, it's the, the, the archive is, is getting larger and larger, <laughs> you know. Which is why he's employing his 16-year-old niece to uh, oh, go through <laughs> and uh, scan and organize his Your negative. Intern? She, yeah. she is. She She's not only, she's actually getting paid. That's you know? cool, that's great. She's coming yeah. one day a week after, after high school. She's just finished 10th grade. She's coming. Back in Israel. Back in Israel. She's coming to my apartment. We're having lunch together. Uh, and then she sits for three or four more hours and she catalogs negatives. That's for great. Me. You know, she, and she's so good in it that <laughs> it's, she's doing things that I would never be able to, <laughs> to actually comprehend <laughs> and, and be so exact and, and 
and good with it. So she will give them catalog numbers and she will arrange them chronologically and according to continents and according to projects and according to countries and black and white and different formats. And you're you scanning. Know. You're and then scanning. when she's going to be done with all the cataloging of numbers, she will actually take every contact sheet and will scan it. And then there will be a corresponding, you know, because I'm not too organized. I have to say, <laughs> this is kind of sad. But, you know, this is what I'm trying to do now. I have a system now of cataloging it for the first time. I decided that I'm not going back before 2005 because I'm never going to get, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I'm never going to finish it. So up to 2005, I'm tracing back, trying to give them numbers to actually know what I have there and I'm sure that if I'm going to start looking through all these negatives and contact sheets there will be more projects and more pictures to share with the world you know and more pictures to, and probably the problem that I cannot do it because every time I will pull up a negative from 2007 I was like whoa <laughs> you know I don't remember that's amazing and I will start <laughs> take it to the scanner and I will scan that and this will take me forever right. I can't I can't do that we need an unaffected you know objective 16 year old I, 16 year old <laughs> that's right. you know but even that that's this is really exciting for her too because i think she gets to know her uncle a little differently oh, she gets great. to see uh places she gets to see photographs from different friends of mine she even gets to see a lot of time pictures of herself you know because she was born in 1999 i already lived in new york at the time actually mm -hmm. in boston uh, but i would photograph her regularly and for actually her 10th birthday, I made her a little blur book. Oh, yeah, I remember when you did that. That was mm -hmm. called 10. There, are, there was one or two pictures from every year since 1999 until 2009, which oh, turned 10. Very sweet. Um, so we have this photo connection, too. And now she's, she studies film or cinema in high school. Mm -hmm. um, so she photographs videos. She does some video. Um, That's so, interesting. I'm, I'm going through... Uh, some of this with with my son now who's who'll be turning eight and so when I told him we were doing this I was doing this podcast he said oh let's I want to start listening to it because you know his big thing is watching youtubers right so he uh -huh. watches people on YouTube and he and uh, it's kind of tuned in a little bit to this idea of of self you know making your own show uh, but it's, it's interesting to have this relationship with someone in a very uh, you know familiar context, right? Somebody who knows you completely as just this person, right. not as a professional or a photographer or things like that. Uh, and then they you know they, they they come into that your world, you know, knowing you very very well. It's a very interesting experience. A very and then they experience. plug in into what you actually do, which mm -hmm. is different than who you are. Right, right. right. Um, you know, and it, and it's really it's really a wonderful experience. Actually, being in Israel for me, it's a really important experience. Whether I'm going to stay there for the rest of my life or not, which I can't predict. You know, mm -hmm. I we can't we can never predict life anyhow. You right. Know? Well, well, right now you're you're off to Boston. Yes. Right. Uh, you're doing a residency, the Emmanuel College Artist Residency. Exactly. So you know, I was fortunate to be granted this uh, residency for the entire summer. Uh, working on a project related to American Revolutionary War sites. So I'm going back to the sites and look at them and how they're actually being used now, being occupied now. So I'm working on that. They, they are very generous. They gave you a place to stay, a studio. There are the three artists from ceramics, social justice and printmaking that we share the space and, and the conversation. 
so I'm there for two months with occasional trips down to New York because I have so many friends here and things to do and, uh, and to photograph. So I'm, 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 doing, I'm doing both right now and I'm going to put up uh, an exhibition in Boston next month nice. with this work that I... Not really that's sure. That said, or I mean, that's a, a, an exhibition you know is going to happen. It's going to happen. I don't know what I'm going to have there yet. Oh, okay. I don't think that <laughs> I photographed what I have there yet. Mm-hmm. I photographed a little bit, not enough. I, I'm not, you know, I'm still working on that. But at the same time, it's a good time for me to to concentrate on the other two things that I need to do for September and October. I'm in a group show and a solo show. One has to do with these portraits that I did in in Neve Shanan, in Serene Oasis. And the other one is a family port, uh, project that I've been working on for seven years now. Of uh, I'm photographing basically close portraits hmm. of the, my entire family from both sides, two levels, not two you know, generations, basically my generation and my parents' generation, which in my family, it's 66 people. Wow. You know, so mm-hmm. in the past seven years I've been working on it, I photographed almost 50 already. Hmm. And in October, it's the first time I'm going to show this work uh, in a little more interactive, kind of different way than because the pictures are made with a four by five black and white film. But I'm going to show them actually as projections and as kind of computer yes. interpretation. So, so we'll, we'll link to your website, yoavharesh.com. And, and you said you were also on Facebook. I am. What Do you know what is your... Um it's probably Yoav Horish. Okay. Y-O-A-V-H-O-R-E-S-H. And that's the same with Instagram. It's Yoav dot Horish. Oh, think. okay. And Twitter? Uh, I don't have Twitter. All right. <laughs> I, I apologize. No, no. Instagram is probably a bit more useful for a photographer. But this, this is a wonderful thing that you're doing here. Oh, I thanks. I think that this is, this, is, this is just like making pictures and preserving something and giving something to other people. I very much think of this as a record. It is, yeah, a, it and is. I, I, I want to use it for with my students and and really have a nice record. It's an educational tool. Mm-hmm. It's something that you know we're gonna look down the aisle like right. a year, five, and fifty years mm-hmm. from now, and I think it's gonna be something very, very. This is this, and this is the world that this you know sound and pictures and videos and and records and papers. But uh, I I think this is actually wonderful. I'm really uh, glad to be part of this lineage guy do you have any uh final thoughts uh, ideas questions no i don't think so it was nice being a co-host for the second time yes thank you very uh, much thank you kai yeah this was really great and this is a nice uh we're finishing the fourth of july weekend right right here in new york yes yeah Yeah, i don't know exactly when this one will uh will be released but uh it won't be long long. i'm looking forward for that and listening and listening to the previous four of course Oh, and you. to the next 15. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Hopefully we'll keep it going. <laughs> good. Well, thank you, Michael. Well, thank you very much. All right. Have a good day. And goodbye. Bye. Well, thanks again for listening to The Photo Show. Our new drop date for the show is on Sunday nights. Uh, and really, thank you all for listening. We've had over 800 listens so far. Uh, be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Uh, you can find all those links at thephotoshow.org. Goodbye, everyone.